I'm like doing my best every day when I get out of bed to focus on this thing that is really important. And since I can't imagine a more important problem to work on, there's just a lot of personal fulfillment there, no matter whether the things I build are a success or not. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS startups. On this show, we revisit discussions from High Alpha's Speaker Series, a monthly event series featuring industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors. And so for our very first season, we're joined by founders and CEOs across the country running everything from B2B software companies to international airports. On today's episode, we're joined by Jason Jacobs, the CEO and founder of RunKeeper, and now the host of the podcast, My Climate Journey. In 2016, Jason's company, RunKeeper, which was one of the largest fitness apps and communities out there, was acquired by ASICS. And post-acquisition, he turned his attention to climate change and just understanding how he could address the problem with his skill set as a longtime software entrepreneur. And so today, he is the host of the My Climate Journey podcast, and then also a venture investor focused on climate tech. This interview actually aired in April 2021, and Jason was joined by High Alpha partner Mike Fitzgerald. They chatted about everything from Jason Jacobs' background, his perspective on the combination of startups and climate change, and a lot of stories around building and running RunKeeper. And so during the interview, Jason just shares a ton of wisdom around being an entrepreneur, the entrepreneur's journey, his journey building and running RunKeeper, the ups, the downs, and It was just a really incredible episode and incredible kind of journey to hear from him around the whole story. And so you'll hear everything from the importance of great partners and advisors to you as an entrepreneur, why you should focus on the work that excites you and have a a focus and not get off that path and just lessons from building a successful startup. And then at the end of the episode, we, we dive into as well, just what the future holds for technology that's addressing climate change and some areas that all of us should be looking into and uh, where we can get started on our own climate journey. So without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Welcome everybody. I'm Mike Fitzgerald on behalf of uh, High Alpha. I'm really excited to welcome you to our 52nd speaker series. We've been at this a while. And for those of you paying attention at home, April 14th is, in fact, the six-year anniversary of High Alpha. And we sent our guest, Jason, hats to commemorate the six-year anniversary, which he's rocking on the, on the speaker series Zoom today. Jason, welcome. I'm so excited that you're here. I'll just do a real brief intro, and then we're going to jump in. I got to know Jason just a few months ago through an introduction from, from Gary Cooper at Reapley, one of our new CEOs, Gary said, hey, you need to meet Jason. And we had a great conversation. And what struck me was Jason's journey. And he is a software entrepreneur of which many of you on the phone are, are also software entrepreneurs. And he started a business called, called RunKeeper in the Boston area. That's right, Jason. That's where you, that's where you started that business. Yeah. Yeah, everyone assumes we were in the valley uh, the whole time we were building it, but yes, we were in Boston. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And and built that company up, which Jason's going to tell us about, and and had a great exit. And then what he did after, I think, is going to be the meat of our conversation today because it's just fascinating. And he's got a, I would just call a, a brand called My Climate Journey around which he's done so much, built a huge community, and focuses a lot on learning and discovery, and is now getting into investment 
which is near and dear to the hearts of a lot of us on the Zoom today. Just super excited. And Jason, welcome. Thanks so much for, for joining. What a huge honor to be here. And I have uh, major gratitude to Gary, both for letting our little fun participate in his journey together with you, but also for bringing us together because we've already, we've already done another one together that, that we can't uh, talk about yet, but hopefully many more. And, and you guys yes. are just such a nice compliment to, to what we do. And we're so glad to know you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's cool. I tell you, for everybody out there who wonders if if introductions and networking and meeting new people still takes place, Jason and I are a good example of, of folks that, that were connected through Gary and have, have built up a, a really good friendship and partnership already. So it still happens. It still works. Jason, I want to, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground here, but I want to jump in with really your background. So let's go all the way back to the start of a runkeeper because as you got a lot of folks on the line who are building businesses right and they're at some point of either they got an idea or they've been running a business for a while get us started with the runkeeper story can i go back a tiny bit further than that Yo, yeah absolutely yeah so i i'm definitely what what you would call a late bloomer i i went to a, a, a decent liberal arts college but really just went as a hockey player and not as uh as an academic, and it definitely showed in my, not just in my GPA, but in my course selection, et cetera, I really was absence of passion when it came to learning and creation. And I knew something was missing. And in hindsight, what was missing was having something to be passionate about and to pour my whole heart and soul uh, into. But at the time, I thought it was like, I just wished I went to a big state school, honestly, (laughs) (laughs) but fell into tech in uh, the late 90s when I got out of college and was in roles of increasing responsibility on the people side of small, high growth venture backed startups. Given that it was Boston, I was working in like data storage companies and those companies, I love the sport of business. That was a big aha for me that that business didn't need to feel not exciting. Uh, and it felt the camaraderie, the team, working with great people, winning, building something from nothing. All of that was like a huge discovery. But the widget, I could could have cared less about. Not that it isn't important, the plumbing of the internet, but it's just not a personal passion area. And I knew I wanted to start a company, but it took me many years to pull the trigger so much yeah. that I was starting to have self-doubt and quit my job to focus full-time on figuring it out. But I waited a few months to get my bonus. And while I was waiting, I was driving myself crazy. So I signed up for my first marathon. And it was during that training that I uncovered the opportunity for Runkeeper, but also uncovered that the widget did matter. And I was mm. super passionate about fitness and then spent the next decade building a fitness technology company. So that's mm. that was the Runkeeper origin story. It, so, so one thing I want to drill in on, did you, you created some space for yourself? You weren't heads down at your job when you said, hey, I'm going to train for a marathon and wow, there's nothing out here to help me train. Was there a period of time where you were unattached and that you think that gave inspiration or were you were you still gainfully employed? Yeah, I was a headhunter at the time doing CEO searches for clients like you. And, and you know how grueling that is, especially when you have multiple projects going on all the time and you're only as good as your last search. And and so I was working a lot more than a, a full-time job, but I knew, but I was miserable. I was learning great skills, meeting great people. And actually that skill set, I would argue, is a superpower for an entrepreneur. But I I was like fundamentally unhappy and knew that I needed to go and knew that I wanted to take a shot at becoming an entrepreneur, but had no team and no idea and didn't know what was holding me back. So I set myself a deadline 
and said, when I get that once a year bonus, I'm out whether I have an idea or not. And I was like nights and weekends in the coffee shop, like looking at different ideas and feeling the heat and like putting myself into the red zone. So finally I was like, All right, this is not productive. I need to do something that's like a big thing I can chase that is not this. Yeah. That's my, clears my head. And the marathon was like a big audacious goal that I thought would be a good one because running had been creeping up since I quit division three hockey a year and two games in, I started running as a way to just hold it all together. And then I did a 5k in 2003. And then I did a half a couple of years later. And that, so it just kind of yeah. crept, but that was like the next step. So I signed up for that and was then using existing tools. And, and I, because it was my first, I took it really seriously. I was all nervous about it. I had an 18 week plan printed on my refrigerator. And, and during that training, slowly, I was like, okay, I was, getting to know the existing tools and they were lacking for my needs, but also I was uncovering an opportunity and I was like piecing together, wait a minute, I love this area, like fitness, aha, there's something I'm passionate about beyond working all the time, building startups. Like I can actually build a company where I'm passionate about the domain too. And who's yeah. better equipped to build this company than me, given how well I know the space as a participant. Yeah. 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 That's cool. And Jason, were you hands-on keyboard? with the app or were, how, how did you, how'd you assemble the kind of the team and the money and things to get Runkeeper going? Yeah. So never been hands-on keyboard and maybe never will be, I don't know, which is hard, but it, but if I'm intellectually honest, like it's just not, it's not my jam. I, right. yeah. Prior to Runkeeper, I was like recruiting sales, business development, got my MBA and was a headhunter doing CEO searches for venture back companies. And with Runkeeper set out, I knew I was going to do something in fitness and initially it was going to be a platform that worked with all the existing devices and ultimately mobile would come, but mobile at the time was like razor phones and, and stuff that just wasn't conducive to, you know, to good experiences. But as I was starting to pull a team together or find a team talking to eight development shops, talking to individual engineers, talking to, you know, founders of, I was just talking to everybody really. And, and development shop that was primarily desktop who this was like may of 2008 and if you recall the app store launched in july of 2008 mm. and they said hey we can build you this website it'll be like 50 grand but which it like wasn't palatable for me that was like most of my savings uh <laughs> that i'd squirreled away to go salary free when i quit my job and and i and then they said, "We have you seen that this app store is coming? Because there's only 10,000 licenses Apple put out. We happen to get one. We just found out yesterday. We're psyched about it. We're trying to find a first app to build. We were going to build one internally just like to eat the cost, just so we could transition to being an iPhone development shop because we think this thing's going to fly. But like, this seems like a great project. Couldn't you like turn the phone into a fitness tracker? And meanwhile, I've been training for the marathon with Nike Plus in my iPod. But I'd already right. been using an Apple mobile device not a phone, but an Apple right. mobile device to track my fitness with a chip in the shoe. And it was like, wait a minute, it's not announced that the phone's going to have GPS yet, but all the smartphones are having GPS. How can it not? Like Steve Jobs isn't dumb. And <laughs> this app store, like we got to be there. So I immediately paid a whole lot less than, than 50 grand out of my savings. That was the first moment where I had confidence to actually put something into the business. Then went back to these moonlighters that I was talking to about building a website and said, okay, we're ready to go. But instead of a website, that's going to be across every device it's only going to be around this iphone app that we're building and then we happen to be in the app store like day one right at wow. launch i in fact i camped out i have a picture of me camping out overnight at the apple store in back bay in boston to get my hands on a device the day the phone launched because 
you could build an app, but you couldn't have a physical device to test on until the phone was in the wild. And we didn't feel comfortable shipping a GPS application without ever having tested it on real hardware. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot in there, including the just the serendipity, the timing that this shop had procured a license and said, hey, we think we got to do something on this to cut our teeth. And that turned into that turned into your application. That's that that's fantastic. And you built that company for a few years. And tell us a little bit about what that, how Runkeeper grew and, and what you learned about growing a business before eventually having a chance to exit. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I tried. I just almost managed to block it out. So I'm glad you're finally picking the scab before, before I, it, it officially leaves my system forever. And then we can reset the clock. But the, yeah, the first phase, we were like bootstrapped, profitable. We weren't fundable because I, was like the opposite of central casting. I was like an MBA, non-engineer, sole founder, building a consumer app, in consumer thing in Boston, which no one did, building a mobile app, which like no VC thought was going to be, they thought it was all going to be ringtones and fart apps. Yeah. And it, and oh, also the recession, right? Like I quit my job in May of 2008. It was when my paycheck stopped. And then the bottom fell out. Like I was, I think I forget the exact timing, but it was like a few months later with Lehman and everything like that. So all the angel investment and stuff like that dried up. It was like a, you know, ghost town, Silicon Valley cleared out. Like mm. it was, yeah, it, it was crazy. And, but it ended up with our our moonlighting structure where I had this. So we launched the app, it was a paid app, which then was immediately revenue. And then we had moonlighters working for equity and, and I had no salary, but I had a couple of years of savings, which meant that essentially we were a cockroach. We could keep putting one foot in front of the other and we weren't on anybody's clock right. as long as we kept our expenses artificially low. So we did that for a while. And then finally, we got it to a place where where we actually had the cash flows to start bringing some of the people in, at least for a stipend, which is what they needed, and some of the initial Moonlighters. And then for them to come in, we didn't feel comfortable just relying on download revenue. So I raised a little bit of money from Angels just to get both the money and buffer, but also the expertise around the table. Uh and then we did that for a year with this core, like four, four person team. And, and one of the Moonlighters came in for no salary. The, the other two needed a little bit of a stipend just because they would have taken nothing, but they had bills. And uh, let's see. Yeah. A year later, we, we wanted to add recurring. We had, we had just added a recurring model a few months before and, and the download revenue is still cranking, but there was some price confusion between the one-time purchase and the recurring. So we wanted to actually shed the paid app to give everyone everyone with the free app, the paid experience, and then focus on the subscription. So we shed 90% of our revenue. But before we did that, we raised a million dollars at that time. And we did it from a, a great seed firm that was called O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures, Bryce Roberts, if you uh, ever came across him. And then, so we did that. We had a huge media event when we did that because everyone was trying to figure out app store business models. And here's one of the leaders in the app store up 90% of the revenue. Are they crazy? And, and then our, we kind of hockey sticks and recurring revenue. We never touched the 400K. We never touched the million. And then wow. we started feeling we had the hot hand and we could go raise a big round. But in order to do that, we needed a big story. And the conventional wisdom at the time was that running could only get you so far. And so we started looking beyond running and we started integrating with some other devices to try to start to think about a platform story. And it was like a Wi-Fi body scale, a sleep monitor, yeah. a, a Fitbit. And the runners liked it because they care about data. But then over the course of building that API, we got a little carried away. And instead of the RunKeeper API, it became the fitness API. And by the time it launched, we called it the health graph. And mm. it was right around the time that Google and 
you know, Google Health and Microsoft Health Vault were failing. And we thought we had a window to tell the story of like bottoms up consumer data. And we raised a big round with this health vision, which I still continue to think 10 years later was, a, I'm not going to say a mistake because it all worked out. So you can't question, but it ended up causing a lot of problems. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, that's interesting. <laughs> Again, so, so many parallels here that the turning off your main source of, of revenue. We have a couple of companies in our portfolio where we have those same conversations. You've got a source of revenue, but decide it's not the future and make a really hard decision that that a lot of logical people would question. That, My that, dad wouldn't I, talk to me. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he, are you like, this is reckless. You have revenue. Like, you, you can't give up revenue. You're going to be free. What are you doing? How are you going to eat? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the, 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 the good view of a parent. Wait a second. What, what am I not understanding here? But hey, that's that when you're on the edge, as you certainly were at that time, those are things that those are things that you got to face. Jason, I'm curious. So now you're the, the journey's on. You're on uh, Runkeeper. You're running the you're running the company. So many people get grow into their first CEO job. So you have been doing really important work as a headhunter. You obviously know your way around the business world. What did ever just hit you? Like, okay, now I'm running a company. Now I'm the chief executive. Now I'm the primary shareholder. Like, did, was there a moment that that set in, or did it just flow from the the inception of the the company? Until we raised that 10 million, we had a, because that, yeah, when we raised that big round, it was, we raised 400, never touched it, raised a million, never touched it. And then we raised 10 and it was a year. And when we raised that 10, there were like three big firms, three big funds. And, and we were like, I think we were like 10 or 12 people. And if we weren't profitable, we were like right around break even. We, we overcapitalized and we told a story that we thought we needed to tell to get the money versus really one that we, in with the benefit of hindsight, we believed it at the time, but that we were both well-equipped to do and that really gave us energy. And and that our community, that was just a natural fit for the our, our traction. We had real meaningful traction and it could have been a wedge to something big, but the story we ended up telling was pretty disjoint mm-hmm. from our initial entry point. And also I really wasn't, my title was CEO, up to that point, but it was like, I had my lane and then this, someone else had their lane and someone else had their lane, but like kind of no one was the CEO. Uh, right. And and then after that, we had some turbulence and we, we had some co-founder issues and maybe a little bit of a messy breakup. And and then I was like all alone and it was like, okay, yeah, now I need to be the CEO. And so that CEO forum that a few months earlier, when I found out it was like 10 or 15K a year, I was like, no effing way. Right? Uh, <laughs> All of a sudden, that was looking like a bargain. A good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So I needed a lot of help at that point. It was like CEO forum, executive coach. And the the board gave me a lot of rope, which they really believed in me and believed in the company, which is great. But one of the problems is that because we had so much time and so much runway, it meant that we were probably fat and happy for a little bit too long. And so instead of being wartime, an acute wartime in the Ben Horowitz kind of way, and it ended up being more like carbon monoxide wartime where we're not operating <laughs> in a healthy way, but it plays out yeah. over a more prolonged period. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'll, bring us to the, the, the close of the run keeper because you had a really good outcome. Asics is a, a global, Yeah, But you can see brand. now, you can see now why I might have feel some guilt or like I'm not worthy on the other side, given the journey that we went through to get there. Yeah. 
yeah. no, that's good. So t- just tell us about that. You, you were they a partner? Did they come after you just out of the blue? And did you consider other things, or was this the this was the path you you were going to go? Yeah, we we were the best running app in the early days, and because we felt like we needed to tell a bigger story. We were like a child actor trying to escape running. So instead of doubling and tripling down and owning it and then expanding from position of strength, we thought, oh, the running brands aren't strategic for us. The running brands, like we need to keep them at arm's length and we need to talk to Facebook, Apple, Sony, Qualcomm, like, (laughs) you know, because we're a health company. And what ended up happening is our position in the running market started eroding. And so over time, the category started consolidating. And even though, we were early on the clear leader. And then even then, maybe our metrics were bigger, but there was like a leadership path. But if you look from a trajectory standpoint, we had people coming on strong. Why were they coming on strong? Not because they're smarter than us, not because they're better than us, because they, they were focused and we they weren't. Were yeah, um, and we were misaligned. We had a team that was like running and this is awesome and running. And then we had a board and it's my fault, but that was like, hey, but we bought into this health vision. When are we going to get back to uh, like the health graph? And, uh, and, and so we lived and we didn't rip the bandaid and get, aligned for too long. Yep. Uh, yep. And so we ended up being good at neither. And so when the category started consolidating, we weren't getting the calls. And yeah. and the board was like, why aren't we getting the calls? Look, we're like, we're the leader. We're right. And and we weren't getting the calls because we weren't building the bridges. We weren't, we weren't testing the waters. We weren't building relationships. We weren't collaborating. We weren't showing up to visit on our trips into town. We weren't doing any of those things. We yeah. weren't showing any interest. We were, in fact, we were like giving them the Heismans. They were like, fine, you're going to give us the Heisman. Like, of course we're not going to call you. And then we're like, hey, why didn't you call? Yeah. So we ended up getting to a hard place where we were still growing. I think it was like 100% year over year, which is which is not bad, but this is user growth, not revenue growth. Because we yeah. became allergic to revenue when we raised the 10 million and we ramped up our burn and we deprioritized revenue. So we had the worst combination, which was like a little bit of revenue and flat, but just enough to, to, to kill the promise story, but, but not enough to tell a good story. And we had a big burn because we went and hired all these people and, and we were not aligned at the board level. I didn't have a real leadership team around me at the time. And, and yeah, we ended up, or actually I had a real leadership team. What I really didn't have was a real number two uh, who was hmm. holistic across the, right. the business. And in hindsight, the reason I didn't is because the CEO group said that you don't do that until you're several hundred employees. And maybe that works for a very operational CEO, but I'm not that, right? I'm yes. more vision, people, story, big strategic deal-making or fundraising or hiring or voice to the customer or to the press or to, but, right. but I need the counterbalance who's going to just keep the trains running, budget, process, headcount. Cash flows, OKRs, like, uh, you know, right. stuff to stuff that I'm just not that good at. And so the board ended up supporting. We couldn't raise the outside round, or if we could, it, we would have had to do it on a story that would get us even more distracted. All I wanted to do was get back to running. Um, yeah. So the board did an inside round, and I made it clear to them, like, hey, this is the last cash that we're ever going to ask for from you. And then we're going to focus on running, not anything beyond running. And look, once we're the leader in running a year from now, we can look in the mirror if we're healthy and we're when we've gotten back to the spot we need to be in, we can expand from the position of strength that we should have been in to begin with before we expanded. But until then, essentially, and it wasn't said in this way, but it was like, leave us alone. And so they did. They supported the company to their credit. They didn't do anything nasty. They could have. And and we, I brought in a real number two. I cut a third of the team. We got laser focused on running, laser focused on revenue, laser focused on partnerships with the running companies. And sure enough, I think it was 12 or 18 months later, we were acquired for a great outcome and, and we didn't need to. We had the leverage of no, even without multiple suitors, we had the leverage of no, because 
we were in a strong position where we stood on our own two feet. So I was so concerned before we ripped that Band-Aid with optics and, every, and the strong position was all based on optics and what TechCrunch says. Once we got healthy and profitable, then we didn't have to answer to anybody. So yeah. the strength was actually in the, in the pain of the journey. It's like, in order to be strong, you needed to get weak, essentially. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's really good. And again, I, I was, I felt like this was going to happen and it's happening for sure, which is just, there are so many great stories in your building of that business that I think relate to, to, to our folks, including focus and, you know, what's a strategic move that makes your market bigger. That's really smart versus what's, where is it a good idea to focus and say, Hey, this is, if we're world-class in this, that's going to be enough. And you certainly have lived that. I want to move a little bit to post Runkeeper, post A6. I know you you worked there for about a year. And as we get into my climate journey, you shared this with me when we first met, Jason. I think it's really a compelling part of your story. Talk about the move you made to go start another business, kind of thinking, okay, this is what I do. I'm going to go raise some money. I'm going to do this again. And maybe tell how that story ended and you got on your climate journey from there. Yeah, just to, to, to just close out the ASICS chapter, we required it. It was truly a partnership based on mutual respect and admiration. Like even in the courtship process, we both went in with the spirit of wanting to get something done. There weren't a lot of games. It was very much kind of straight shooting all around. It's a Japanese company. We took a trip very early on in the process to Japan and presented to a room of probably 20 or 30 people. Very few of them spoke English. There were many bankers in the room. It was like a wild life experience. But yeah. in the end, the body accepted the organ, the team, <laughs> the team is still there and thriving and growing. Nice. Uh, the, yeah. So I'm very proud of how that all played out. And every class of investors made money. It was great. The team got treated very well and it was life-changing for me. So yeah. I, I went from no liquidity, like literally a year or two before I was like pleading with the board to let me sell 50 grand in shares at the 4098 price from three years ago. So I could put a down payment on a house I didn't want. And, and then I, and then it was like re- really life-changing liquidity. I don't have a foundation or anything, but it was life-changing. And, yeah. and that kind of messed with me. I was like, especially after that grueling ride, I was like, oh man, instead of doing the touchdown dance and being proud and high-fiving, I like felt almost shame. I was like, I'm not worthy. There's so many things that there's like a hundred things that needed to happen for this to get in place. I can't believe we pulled this rabbit out of a hat. Wow. And so I, yeah, I took some time off, rested, tried to get healthy, like all these kind of recessive, like stresses and stuff. Like I started having weird ailments and stuff, just as like my body thought out from suppressing all this stuff for a decade. And then I didn't know how I was going to ever fall in love with something again. Like I was as invested in Runkeeper. And I started worrying like that with every passing day, I was in my forties, my stock prices atrophying. Am I ever going to get back on the horse? Are my best days done? And so I wanted to do something purposeful, but like nothing was catching my interest. And I looked at climate, but it was like, ah, like this is depressing and it's really sciencey. What value can I add? And around that time, there was this app, remember the HQ trivia? The Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So it, it was like, I was like, who wants to be a millionaire? And then this might date myself, but except instead of watching the sh- you know, people compete for a million dollars, like the, 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 anyone who downloads the app can play. And then it's, it's elimination rounds until you get, and then there's winners for, for, for every show. Yes. Yeah, so I was like, wow, this is like taking live television and putting it in a native mobile app so that all the interactivity of a phone, you can actually be 
in the show. No wonder why interactive TV didn't work. Have you ever tried to interact with a television, but like a phone? And I said, man, this has applications way beyond prize-based entertainment, but I don't know where, what a fun area that would be to experiment in. So I was kind of breadcrumbing some of that on Twitter and some one VC I'd known a long time who I have deep respect and admiration for convinced me to take a little bit of money. And I said, but it's just a market. I don't have no team. I have no idea. I have no slides. I have, and, and I, the story was essentially to stand up the infrastructure for, of native mobile apps and of live television production under one roof and build a studio to start experimenting in different areas and build a tech-enabled content portfolio. It wasn't actually a bad idea, especially with the pandemic. It would have been interesting to see how that played out. But the way yeah. I justified it based on my wanting to duty for purpose was I said, we're going to build really purposeful shows, which is a, cr- I mean, that's just garbage. That's like intellectually dishonest, I would say. But I was pretty hung up on feeling the heat to get back on the horse. It, I think it had yeah. already been maybe a year and a half or something that I'd been on the beach. And and so I did that. And then once he was in, I, I brought in a couple other firms. So we only raised a little bit of money, but there were three VCs at the table now. Got the founding team from Runkeeper back together and who I love working with and have deep respect for and started identifying areas. And quickly, as we had three VCs on the cap table, just subliminally, I was chasing the stuff that looked big and could make money. And it wasn't purposeful at all. It was like, what does QVC look like reinvented? What the next generation of shopping on your phone or things like stuff that's like the opposite. No disrespect to these areas, but yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. And, and meanwhile, the IPCC report came out and Trump was taking steps to withdraw us from Paris and the scientific community was foaming at the mouth. The symptoms were becoming more visible and obvious. We would like line up an area. And at this point, we have four or five fertile areas. Any one of them would have been super interesting to tackle just like intellectually and from a capitalist standpoint. I wasn't greenlighting anything. Huh. And my co-founders were getting more and more frustrated because they're builders. They just wanted to go and slay any one of these things. And yes. all I wanted to do was go walk in the woods. I was starting to say things, like I said to one of our angels, I just brought in a few angels of people I'd known a long time. I said, hey, uh, uh, how do you, are you worried about climate change? Or what? If we don't address that, what's the point of all this other stuff? And so I would like get focused and we'd be about to, and then there'd be some bad news and I'd be, you know, like macro bad news and I'd go right. into this tailspin. And so finally it just got to a point where I realized, man, if I'm feeling this way three months in, no, knowing how grueling the ride is yes. after my last yes. one, like there's no way I can do this. So I started having conversations with, we didn't have a board or anything. We didn't even have a company. Uh, we had an expedition with a bank account. And uh, and they said, okay, hey, freeze it. Go walk in the woods, take us long. We just want to be in business with you. Whatever you want to do, whether it looks anything like live interactive video or not. And I said, yeah, but like that still weds me to building a venture-backed company. And I don't even know if I want to build a company, let alone a venture-backed company. I just want to go and learn about this problem space. Yeah. So I still had more than 90% of the capital. I returned it. All those relationships were intact. That was not an easy thing to do, but it was the right thing to do. They're all LPs in my fund personally. They're still great relationships, but that wasn't fun. But I came back to climate. This was late 2018 and it's been two and a half years. So focused on it full time and we can talk about what I'm doing there and how that journey's gone. But I came in with all the same concerns, but just a lot more determined to figure it out and haven't looked back. Yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that because I I think that's a really important set up because you came to climate on the heels of this really when we first met you were saying just to learn you you didn't have at the time from what i remember of your story it wasn't hey i think i can start a newsletter and a podcast and eventually a fund and and make some money you were your objective was i want to get smart about this so tell us where'd you start you you 
wrote emails to people you'd never met and said, hey, I'm interested in learning. Will you spend 20 minutes with me? How'd you do that? Yeah. Keep in mind, I was coming out of probably a five or six month period where it seemed like we were redeclaring on a weekly basis. Like, we're going to build this or we're going to build that or we had like whiplash. And so I was like, all right, there's no welcome blog post. There's no, here's what I'm committing my career to. There's no like, here's what I'm building or even a hypothesis. Like I'm going to put me aside and I am just going to learn about this problem. And I'm just going to start talking to the smartest people I can find that are experts in different aspects of this problem. And I'm going to see where it goes. So I, I just gave myself permission to, completely put that aside, which in my case, and every case is different, but in my case for that situation was the only way I think to, to mm -hmm. do it. So I started reading, I started talking to people and just reaching out cold, getting introductions to pe people. My brother-in-law works in this area or my cousin or my old coworker, or, Hey, when I was in college, I had a professor that did this, like that kind of thing. And then those people would be like, Oh, it's great to see new blood coming in, keep me posted on your journey. I can't wait to see where you end up. And so once a month, I started sending an update, just like a like an uh, investor update. Hey, yeah. here's the ground we covered in the last month. Here's the progress we made. Here's what I learned. Here is I'm tackling next. Here's the questions on my mind. And if you know anyone that looks like this, here's who I'm interested in talking to next. And so I'll get more and more intros. The distribution list started growing. And also the people that were on it, it was almost like reality TV where the making of the band or something where you start getting drawn to the story. It's not it's the human elements of it, not the what's the answer to climate change, but more what's going to happen. You're like, I'm being dramatic, but like yeah. I'm giving myself too much credit, but people are on the edge of their seat. And, and then people from my old, I say Silicon Valley, but like my old kind of traditional tech life yeah. started reaching out and saying, Hey, I'm inspired by what you're doing. And I feel the same. Like, where should I start? What should I read? What should I do? And, and I said, there's no single place to point to that I've found, but I'm talking to so many smart people. I wish you could be a fly on the wall for all these discussions. Mm. So I started the podcast both as a, a way to build an knowledge repository for them, but also just for a way to build something and have it not just be an academic exercise. So I started kicking out two episodes per week. My inbox started filling up with people grateful for the pod who were really strategic and really diverse. There was great signal there and I knew about them and they didn't know about each other. So we set up a Slack community. That Slack community has now grown to more than 1500 members. There's Wow. Uh, you have to apply. There's a news model. And there's just a ton of, it's all like-minded people, but from incredibly diverse places, which mirrors the kind of holistic approach that I took to, to learning. Yeah. I can keep going, but why don't I stop? Because I know you probably have some questions or want to direct me. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's, I think that's a, a great place to, to jump in. You, you mentioned to me, climate is, it, it's a very difficult thing to get one's arms around. I know I struggle with that. I'm interested. I'm concerned. I also feel uh, overwhelmed, a little intimidated. And you went from, I'm sure you knew more than I did, but you've said yourself, you're in that learning mode. How do you now look back? So you've been at this for, since 2018. What are a couple things, Jason, just a couple nuggets that maybe you didn't know then in 2018, that with the benefit of all these people and all this related to climate, like what are a couple of things that, that the rest of us should know based on everything that you've learned, people you've talked to? Yeah, it was a big source of anxiety for me before I focused on it because I felt like I was trying to go about my daily life, but then you read all these things about, we have 12 years to act and forced migration and famine and drought and wildfires and hurricanes and tornadoes and extreme everything and scarcity everything and 
wars and like it, it's a it's like a horror movie or something right where you're science fiction if, if you just you and you have this beaten into your head every day and it's all about the problem it's not about the, the solution it's like we need to act is like the what you hear but you don't hear yeah, let's do this yeah sign this thing and then it'll you know open the floodgates and we'll go and do all the things but actually two and a half years in for one i feel a lot less anxious just overall, because now instead of being really concerned about this thing and focusing on other things and feeling guilty that I'm not focused on this thing, I'm like doing my best every day when I get out of bed to focus on this thing that is really important. And since I can't imagine a more important problem to work on, there's just a lot of personal fulfillment there, no matter whether the things I build are a success or not. So that's one element. Uh, Another element is that what I've found is that there's we actually, like the scientists, there's pretty strong consensus about the problem. And there's some certain pockets of disagreement, but there's largely consensus about a large scope of the science. And then same thing on the solutions and what needs to be done. There's debates about should it be this type of, should it be nuclear or should it be renewables or should it be policy or should it be innovation? But there's not a lot of debate though about the math. Uh, and what needs to happen. And so whatever that mix is, and there's trade-offs with the mix and things to debate and and stuff like that about what's going to be most effective and what's going to have the least side effects and unintended, unintended consequences and things like that. But this is very doable. And the other thing is it's not like an off switch or an on switch, like we make it or we don't. It's, it's all about degrees. The planet's going to be fine no matter what, but it's just about as we're sorting this through, if we don't address it and we continue making it worse, then it'll just be this kind of like, undercurrent of just more extremes and changing patterns and but but ultimately the planet's going to be fine it's us humans and other life forms that that really need to worry but we will do it i'm very confident that we'll do it the question is just how quickly can we get it done and and then what bad things happen in between because we couldn't get out of our own way and in a way it mirrors covid in that way we'll get through covid one way or another but how many deaths are we going to have how many unnecessary hospitalizations and and right. things like that like it will eventually get past it there's no question but what about the what, what about the the avoidable catastrophe in between right. and, yeah. and 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 climate is the same and then from a solution standpoint when i first went in my line of questioning was like are we screwed and then it was like oh we're not but but there's only certain things that matter, like the Vinod Coastal. There's if I had 14 great entrepreneurs, like climate change would be solved. We would need nothing else. So for a while I was in that mode. Okay, we can actually do something, but it needs to be these moonshots, right? Where I am now, and that might be a different place than I'm in two or three evolutions later, but right. uh, is that it's more like a rainforest where it's like everything matters and everything goes together. If you we need to rewire our whole global economy to and lifestyle way of life to account for the natural resources that we rely on to sustain us. In order to do that, we need to go sector by sector. And there's a role for policy. But how do we get policy in place? We get elected officials to pass it. How do we do that? We get them to feel like they're they're not going to stay in office if they don't. How do we do that? We get voters to care. How do we get voters to care? We Well, there's a host of things to get voters to care, but it probably starts even earlier in the educational system. And uh, so it, it, you can see how, and it's, well, we need the companies to move. Well, how can the companies move? On the one hand, you can get policy that mandates that they move or give them incentives to move. But on the other hand, you can get employees to not be willing to stay there if they don't move and to go someplace else that is going to actually make it more of a priority or college grads when they're choosing where to work or things like that. So it it feels much more interconnected where rather than needing to develop 
this skill set or that skill set. It's like, what is my skill set and where do I feel best equipped to, to sink my teeth into and really not overthinking it. And, and that might mean going in full-time like me, but that might just mean taking an initiative to get your big your employer, the big company you work at, to be more active and starting a petition internally to, to put pressure on the board to, you know, to take more aggressive measures, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I just, in preparation for this, I know, and there's a lot of this in the press, so I'm not suggesting that this was some big mark, but yesterday, letter sent to President Biden, 300 businesses signed this letter, very specifically asking him as it relates to the Paris Accord goals to to change the increase our commitment to that with some real specific things. When you in where you sit now, three years into this, when you see something like that, and you see the corporate world participating and signing the letter and, and so forth, how does that cause you everything now to think about the future companies, right? Gary's company and others that are building into this momentum. You've now started uh, a fund and so forth. So maybe just talk about with all of that apparent wind behind the move, maybe more so than ever, what are the impacts on business? Yeah, it's a tricky thing because because while we do need to move quickly, this is the it's this is the kind of thing that plays out over decades and and more than I know that that a funds life cycle is not decades. Uh, so just because yeah. things are moving in the right direction doesn't necessarily mean that the companies you're backing are going to benefit from that cycle. It might be the next wave. But I mean, it, 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 there's also a lot of factors that are outside of our c- control. And what I find, and I'm no expert to be clear, but before we had the fund, where I was personally adding the most value is on the podcast that was helping educate people that felt like me and were trying to get up to the learning curve. Then on the community side, it was making connections. So if someone was trying to unpack doing something in batteries and someone else was trying to unpack doing something in batteries or someone else was three years down the path in the lab, I would make the connection. If someone was had a technology that could help these types of customers and I knew people in those types of customers, I would make the connection. Everything double opt-in, only where there's potential mutual benefit and everyone's excited for the introductions, but just trying to like unclog the arteries of the system and in a way, we're approaching the fund the same way where we say, okay, we try to play out and say, one, we say what needs to happen. And then two, we say what's likely to happen. And then three, we say, if those things happen, then we're like, where are the opportunities, but also like, where's the biggest pain? And, and we're trying to find the things where we feel confident that they go together. If we feel like we are profiting off of doom, for example, but there's not a big impact story, then we wouldn't do it. But but also the other way, if we feel like something's really important, but it would be better off as a government R&D project or as a philanthropic endeavor, we're not going to do it either because we believe that the biggest value we can have over time is to be deploying more and more capital in these companies and then like shepherding them through and unclogging, unclogging the arteries of the system to help them reach their fullest form. And in order to do that, not only will we not be able to grow our assets under management and our resources that we put towards our content and community and other initiatives, if we don't put up the goods, the returns along the way, but we won't even stay in business. 
So we are not concessionary. We, it's important that, and we want people to hold our feet to the fire for returns, but at the same time, if they're going to just compare us against the fintech fund and the crypto fund and the ad tech fund and the, the, the SaaS fund, then we're probably not the right fit. We want people that are doing it because of impact, but who also expect a market-based return. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I think that's good, good philosophy for all of us. All right, I got some quick hitters here that I want to just fire off and get your just your gut take. If members of the listening community here are going to go check out one of your podcasts to, to to listen and get some information and learn, you got to highlight what one. I, I know you love all your, your podcast guests, but what one might you suggest we try? Yeah, I th- this might be a, a cop I answer, but I would say... If it depends on the person and what perspective they're trying to glean. For example, we have people in there that have been working on climate for decades and decades that have been on the show. But we also have a career series where we literally find people that have been at it, you know, for a year and then in the last three months finally landed a job that is mm. a climate job versus, you know, whatever they were doing before. So I would, I, there's such a wide range of, guess that, that I would look at that and try to find the one that most identifies with what you're trying to get out of it. I do, there are people I just think are a, a, exceptional. Alicia Seiger sits at Stanford and she helps all the Stanford students like figure out what I just said. So I think listening to her perspective, given that instead of one person's story, she's seen like thousands of students come through there. Matanya Horowitz at Amp Robotics, we think that one, he's exceptional because he's like building a monster company, but it's also having a huge impact on a really thorny, important problem. Gene Bertoszewski is another example of that. He's, I'm going to do a Clubhouse uh, show with him tonight. He's, you know, Sela Nanotechnologies. He was employee seven at Tesla, worked on the battery for the Roadster. And then based on the problems he solved, set out to build better batteries and has raised $875 million in, I think, the nine or 10 years he's been at it so far to try to tackle this problem and it's going well, but it's, I can't imagine that's just so different than building a, a running app company. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah. I noticed uh, you're active on clubhouse. How's that platform working for you for, for uh, mixed into your newsletter, Slack channel, et cetera. Is it a good one? It is a good one. It is. We really like about it that it fosters interactions and we really like about it that we can bring on multiple guests with diverse backgrounds and a thorny problem and then sort through it publicly, which is, I think, helpful for them even without an audience and helpful for me from a learning standpoint. But then the fact there's an audience there and then there's some interactive tools to get them engaged. We think that's really different and special as well. I think it's a lot of work and we have a tiny team. And so I think that's one issue we're running into is just like, <laughs> how do we keep up with everything on our plate on the content side and the community side and the fund? We backed 10 companies just last quarter. And our fund this quarter is already more than 20% bigger than the one from the last year. It's on a quarterly, you know, a, roll, a new right? fund every quarter. Rolling fund. Yeah. So resourcing is on, is on my mind. And then the other thing, and I don't know how this will play out, but just appointment-based and synchronous, I think is really special, but it's hard in a world where everyone's oversubscribed. Everyone's trying to put the kids to bed. Everyone's on different time zones. And I don't, uh, someone used the analogy that it was like cable TV versus Netflix kind of thing. I don't know how all that plays out because it's really special in a way that a conference is, but it's just all the stars need to align to get the logistics to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That's good. 
Jason, a lot, lot of folks on with us today are uh, CEOs or executives in, in early stage companies, which obviously you, you, you have been before and arguably with my climate journey, you're back in that seat. What maybe just in, in closing a couple pieces of advice for a, a, a new executive uh, who's going out to build a business? You've been at this and through this a while. What, what couple nuggets of wisdom would you share? Doesn't have to be climate related. It can, but I, I just mean your experience as a, you know, CEO. Oh man, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm some role model or anything, because because there's some aspects that I feel like I'm doing well, and then there's some other things that even now I, I not that I'm super experienced, but even with I'm super experienced compared to how I used to be, and I still feel like there's some things that I'm that I'm that I haven't figured out. One of them, I'll just start with the things I haven't figured out. I don't know how to shut it off. I, it's a, huh. it's addictive. I, and yeah. I love it. And, and I don't know how to do it and be best in class at it and also have a life. I, I'm taking some steps. I have young kids and I'm the assistant coach on my son's lacrosse game. And I, 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 I work out just about every day. So you still, I try to you force still run is, is running still your exercise of choice? It is again. Yeah, there were a few years where I was on injured reserve, but I'm fortunately back at it. It's more than exercise to me. I, I really do. It's like therapy. I yep. therapy, meditation, like entertainment. Like, and yeah, I, I love it. But it's yeah, figuring out that that mix and what kind of example you want to set and making those decisions and then trying to be disciplined about really setting that example for the others around you as you grow the team. I I it's probably something I still need to work on. And also, I just think I, I would have been more intentional about it from the from the outset as yeah. I thought about building companies like from the earliest days. Yeah, I, I, actually, I think that's a great one. And it's always a process. I don't think anybody would claim to have nailed that. But I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think trying to find the blend or the balance or whatever word you want to use between doing something world-class, doing something at a super high level and maintaining the other important things in your life, your health, your family, those things, that's, that's something most of us still have to work on every day. So that's, that's really good. I was going to ask you uh, in, in closing, if, if you're still a runner, which you, which you already asked, I'll ask one more just as a wrap. What will be your, what will be your next trip? If you, everything's clear and safe and good to travel you got something on your list that you're you want to go? Yeah, it's a good question. We we have a little family vacation plan this summer. We're just going to Vermont for a couple of weeks, but that's like middle of nowhere, no nice. people around, big yard, everything self-contained because we had assumed that the pandemic was still uh, going to be here. I, I actually my my wife is now vaccinated. She works in a hospital, and and I I have my first appointment Monday. But I haven't really thought about life on the other side of that. I've just been on autopilot. Like the last year has been really, I feel so fortunate that it's been incredibly prolific professionally. We've like packed a lot in. Yes. But the reason that's happened is because no travel, no commute, no friends, no, no place to go. And so I just like it, sat, sat here and yeah, like my, my, there's very little differentiation between my work and me right now, which I don't think. Or, or I can say even stronger is not the how I think things should be going forward. So it's going to take an adjustment, I think, once 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 we're free from our shackles here. Yeah, yeah, that's good. 
Jason, thank you so much, man. We covered a ton of ground. I appreciate it. Thanks to those of you who offered questions. Hopefully we got to most of those, but awesome spending an hour with you. And for everybody else on the line, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate your participation in these and we will talk to you again very soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by Hi Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.